0: Good morning. My name is Bill Stared, and I serve as elder. This morning's reading comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, which can be found on page 863 of your Pew Bible. And also, we're going to read from 1 Kings 17, verses 17 through 24, which can be found on page 299 of your Pew Bible. We ask that you please stand during the reading of the scriptures. Luke seven eleven through 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And then from 1 Kings 17, verses 17 through 24. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, "'What you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son?' "'Give me your son,' Elijah replied. He took him from her arms carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. You may be seated as we reflect on the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning everyone. If I haven't met you before, my name is Joseph Ray. I'm an associate pastor here at Christ Community. Um, It's been a really full day today, especially for those of you who are at the congregational meeting. And so I'm going to keep this to like 45, 50 minutes. I hope that's going to be okay. uh, I'm going to see how fast I can get us out of here. Um, But I do want us to learn from this amazing text today. And so let's pray. We'll dive in. Jesus, in this passage, you point us to a hope that is beyond our wildest imaginings. That could only come from beyond human life. So I pray that we would see your heart today. I pray that we would see the hope that you offer. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever seen the show called Undercover Boss, um, if there's any of you who are super fans out here, I've seen like one episode. So if you come up to me after to gush, that's wonderful. I probably haven't seen your episode because I've hardly seen anything. But, um, but I just want to manage expectations. Um, but Undercover Boss is a reality show where the CEO of a company, the boss, in other words, goes undercover, you get it, uh, onto like kind of the lower levels of their company or one of their stores to kind of see what employee life is like on the ground. And now most of the show is like the terrible reality show stuff that I hate watching, where it's like people do awful things and get fired, and it's like the, you know, the deliberately bad people in the first episodes of American Idol. It just feels like a waste of everyone's time to watch it. Um, But what I like about the show is that sometimes the boss will find an employee who's doing really good work, but maybe struggling in some significant way. And that boss will use their company authority and maybe their own personal resources to bless that employee and sometimes, you know, like totally rewrite the story of their life. Um, like I saw, there's one clip you can find online of Mitch Model. He was the CEO of Model Sporting Goods. It's a sporting goods chain. And um, he met with a woman named Angel. She was just like kind of a frontline worker. Um, he, she had been training him kind of all day while he was in disguise. And he met with her after. He was blown away by her work. Uh, And then he heard as he got to know her that she was actually living with her three kids in a homeless shelter because she couldn't afford rent for an apartment. And so he did several things for her in this meeting after their time together. First, he uh, gave her a promotion that day up to a position that was going to be paying $14,000 more a year. And then he also gave her $250,000 of his own money so she could buy a house. And have it paid for and so he used his you know executive authority and his own personal resources to completely rewrite her story and the story of her family um, based on his time that he spent with her. and so in the, stu- the story that we're looking at from Luke today, we're going to see a similar situation. We're going to see Jesus come near to a woman in pain. We're going to see him rewrite her story in a way that changes her life and her family's life. Um, But it's not just about her. It also points to a way, because as we're going to see, we're going to see who Jesus is, who he really is. And who he really is means that he can rewrite not just her story, but ours as well. And we're going to see that happen through three key actions Jesus takes that reveal who he really is. And so the first action we're going to see today is that Jesus reaches out in compassion. He reaches out in compassion. Look at verses 11 through 13. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her he had compassion on her and said, "Do not weep." So in the gospels, most of the recorded interactions we have between Jesus and people who aren't his own disciples are they're usually initiated by someone else. So someone comes up to him and asks him for something. They ask him for knowledge or they ask him to do something, ask him to help. You know, it's kind of like when you're in the parent stage where your kids just sort of follow dad around and ask him questions kind of thing. That's, that seems a little bit like what Jesus's life was like, but this story is different. This is one of the very few stories with people who aren't named. We never learn their names, but instead of someone coming to Jesus, Jesus initiates to her. He sees something in her situation that moves him to act, to leave the course that he was on, to leave the people he was with, and to step out and touch her life. So they're from Nain, and he's from Galilee. He doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know who he is, you know, from a human perspective. But nonetheless, without being asked or prompted, he reaches out to her. What is it that evokes this reaction? So verse 12 tells us that the dead man is the only son of a widow. So first, this is an adult woman burying her adult or maybe her teenage son, which just right away, that's one of the most painful things that any of us can imagine having to do. But more than this, he's the only son of a widow. So in this day, very few people had enough wealth to have savings at all, and there was absolutely nothing like Social Security, like what we have now. And so your social security, if you were a woman in this day, was to have a man, either a husband or a father or a son, who could work to provide for you. And if you didn't have that and you didn't have kin otherwise, then you were destitute. You had no economic option, basically, and maybe no like, physical security either, uh, depending on where you lived. You could be in actual physical danger from other men. And so this woman isn't just grieving. She's not just losing someone she loves. She is losing every bit of financial and physical security that she has in her life. She's going to be put on the absolute outer edge of her people's world and you know, consigned to barely making it or possibly just you know, ultimately dying and starving. And so this is a woman on the, in, in the most vulnerable kind of position that someone in her society could be in. And so the fact that this is the kind of person that Jesus responds to tells us something really significant about his heart. So verse 13 in our translation says he had compassion on her. And compassion is a fine word, but that's, you know, in our day, that kind of means like the the feeling of vague pity you have when you watch like a sad dog adoption, you know, advertisement or something. You know, it's like, I just, you feel bad. Um, But the the Greek word under this uh, is something that's much richer and more visceral. So, there's an excellent book called Gentle and Lowly about the heart of Jesus. And the author, Dane Ortland, writes this. He writes, The word translated compassion denotes more than passing pity. It refers to a depth of feeling in which your feelings and longings churn within you. The noun form of this verb means most literally one's guts. So, the sight of this suffering makes Jesus' insides twist with the depth of his feeling for her. He sees a woman who's lost everything and he can't help but stop what he's doing and reach out to her in compassion to help. So once again, in Gentle and Lowly, uh, Dane Ortland writes, he writes, When Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering. So the fact that Jesus takes initiative to go to this woman who is grieving and her son shows us that he sees her state, he understands what's going on, and he is moved, he is twisted in his insides to act from compassion on her. And so this is huge because what we know as Christians is that Jesus wasn't just a human being, he was the God of the universe made flesh. And so what this means is that the God who never had to have anything to do with human suffering came into the world and the people he reached out to were the people who were hurting, the people who were suffering. They were the ones who moved him to pity and to action. It's his deepest impulse, his natural instinct. Psalm thirty-four eighteen says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So if you're here today and you're hurting, it's not a sign that God has abandoned you. God cares for you. God has moved in his heart for you. Jesus isn't physically here, and we're going to see why that is, but the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, is moved for you and wants to draw close to you. And so I hope if you haven't experienced it, you can come talk to us and we can see what we can do to help you experience just the hope and the comfort of God's presence because he cares when his people are in pain. And for all of us, Jesus' action here shows a pattern that should mark all of our lives. So if we have been united to Christ, if we are one with him and we share his spiritual DNA, then one of the signs of that is that we should be moved in compassion as well. Um, at the congregational meeting earlier, we heard from our El cuerpo, El cuerpo ministries, excuse me, which is our ministries to um, kind of the Hispanic community here, and particularly kind of Hispanic communities that are kind of underserved or have particular needs. That's the kind of thing that is a sign of compassion, that we have people in our church who saw a need within a community of people who were kind of culturally outside by virtue of not having English be their main language, maybe have other reasons that they are in need as well, and were moved to help. And through that, we've actually found lots of people in our church who have been moved to help in the same way. And so that's a sign of the heart of Christ, that we have compassion for those who are in need, and we reach out. Like Jesus did. So that's the first thing he does. He reaches out in compassion. And sometimes that's all we can do with someone is we can just be there with someone in their grief or their pain. Sometimes we can help. Sometimes all we have to offer is our presence. But what we see in this story is that Jesus doesn't just reach out to be present with them. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. It says, then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Here we see Jesus's second key action. He restores life. He doesn't just reach out in compassion. He restores life that was lost. So he steps up to the bier, which is the board that the body would have been carried on. It's kind of their version of a casket. He touches it and he doesn't, wave his arms or do any kind of like magical incantation, he says, young man, get up. And this young man who's been dead for a period of time gets up and he starts talking. Jesus restores him to life just by saying, come back. We need to sit with this because death is the unavoidable end of every human life. It's the period, you know, the punctuation mark that stops every story for good on this side of things. There's a surgeon and Harvard professor named Atul Gawande, who, as far as I can tell, he's not a religious person. He's a secular guy. And he wrote a book called Being Mortal, which is a reflection on mortality from the perspective of someone whose job is to prolong life and to you know, push off mortality as long as he can. He writes, death is the enemy, but the enemy has superior forces eventually it wins. But in this encounter, Jesus says, not now, not this time. He speaks and death gives back the young man it had taken. He undoes the enemy that just from a mortal perspective, a secular perspective is the final enemy, the, you know, the unconquerable enemy that takes us all he restores the young man to life and he restores the young man to his mother. It says he gives him back to her. So he restores a family, their life together. Now we're gonna come back to what this means for us, but once we felt the weight of Jesus calling a man out of death and accepted what happened, then we're gonna be asking, how? How on earth does someone have that power? How could that be possible? And that's not a bad question, but the answer to that question isn't a how, it's a who. In a moment, we're going to look at the other story Bill read for us. We're going to flip back to the First Kings story. Before we do, I just want you to know that I didn't pick that at random. So if you look at the end of verse 15 of our Luke story here, we see Jesus gave him to his mother. That little phrase, Jesus gave him to his mother. So now let's turn back to First Kings 17. So if you're in the Blue Bibles, it's on page 299. And look verse, first at verse 23. It says, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. So in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which would have been like the Bible of Jesus' day, this phrase is exactly the same as the phrase in Luke 7. Jesus gave him to his mother. And so when Luke was writing his account, he would want his readers to think back immediately to this story here in 1 Kings. It happened through the prophet Elijah. And so the backstory here is that the Israelite prophet, Elijah, is traveling outside of Israel. And he's taken in by a widow uh, who has a son who's a young man. That sounds, maybe that sounds familiar. And just before this, God has performed a miracle through Elijah to keep this woman and her son provided with food when they were starving. So he pulled them back from the edge of starving to death. And so it really seems like God has blessed her. But as we see in this story, while Elijah is staying with them, the son becomes sick and dies, the only son of this widow. Let's read starting in verse 19. Elijah said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. So Elijah carries the son into the room. What does he do? He prays. He asks God, he cries out to God, God, you are the Lord of the life. It seems like you killed the son. Give him back, please. And the action that he does, you know, sometimes prophets will do something like that. There's nothing magic in the stretching himself, over, himself out over the boy. It's he asks, he calls out and it says, God listened and the boy's breath came back into him. God listened and the boy brought the boy back to life. This is what the Jews in Jesus' day believed. They knew that people didn't rise from the dead. They weren't dumb. They were more familiar with death than they are. They buried their own relatives. That's how people died. They didn't die in hospitals. They died in houses. And so they knew death. They knew people didn't come back. But they also knew that if someone did rise, it was God's doing. They knew that the only being who has the power to restore life to the dead was the one who had created all life to begin with. You consider texts like this from the prophet Isaiah actually read this for our, uh, you know, assurance after the confession and says, and God will swallow up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Or this from the prophet Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. They knew that there was one who, who had the power to undo death. It wasn't a how, it was one who had that power. The Lord, the creator of life. And so when Elijah prays over this dead young man, he prays to that God and God hears him and brings the boy back to life. With that in mind, let's turn back to Luke 7 and our account again. We look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. In first Kings, Elijah prays, and God restores the boy to life. What happens in Luke? I say to you, arise. It's the same who. The same who brings this boy back to life, but this time it's not a who who's up there getting prayed to by a prophet. This time that who is standing there touching the boy's body. I say to you, arise, and life comes back into the boy. This is Jesus's third key action. This is He reveals his divine nature just a little bit. Sometimes in the Gospels, the writers will record someone saying something that's truer than they know, or true in a sense that we can see on this side of the story, even though they couldn't see it back then. And so if we look at the people responding in verses 16 and 17, it says, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So they say a great prophet has arisen among us. And that's true in a sense. You know, Jesus was a prophet even greater than Elijah, um, much greater. They also say God has visited his people. What they would have meant is that God touched this young man's life in a special way through this person of Jesus. But the statement is actually truer than they know and truer in a different sense than they knew. That God was visiting his people. He was visiting them in a much more close way, much more of a, you know, at the risk of kind of, uh, whatever, making it seem silly, an undercover boss type of way. He's right there. Now, he used his authority to bring an incredible blessing to this family. Now, this is all the story was. It's a thing that Jesus did for this one family 2,000 years ago in the past. That would be amazing. You know, he'd still think he's God, but it wouldn't have much to do for us. Or even for that family, you know, as they lived on, the mother died and the son died again. So death was delayed, death was deferred, but it wasn't defeated. And so that's all it is then. That's like, it's a cool story, but it's, you know, a short-term reprieve for them and nothing really for us. Like Atul Gawande wrote, it won in the end. And there's a point in time where it seems like death even wins over Jesus. So a few years after this event, he has a Passover dinner with his disciples in Jerusalem. That's the first communion, which we're going to celebrate here in a few minutes. That's the, uh, be the end of our service. So in that dinner, Jesus takes the bread they eat and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. then he takes one of the cups of wine that they drink. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. It's going to be poured out for you. So he tells them, my body is about to be broken for you. My blood is about to be poured out for you as a sacrifice to cover your sin. And within hours, that's what happens. He's arrested later on that night or very early the next morning, and then he's crucified. He's nailed to a cross, and he's left to hang there until he suffocates. And the Roman soldiers, they stab him in the side with a spear to make sure he's dead. Again, this is something that they were very professionally experienced with. They knew what to do. And Jesus, the young man, was taken away, and he was buried. He was buried on a Friday. On Sunday, he rose again. No one had to speak over him. No one had to say, I say to you, arise. There's no one physically there making it happen. But God himself, God the Father brought him back to life. And I think I've used this illustration before. This, this isn't like Rocky kind of rising, bloodied and bruised on the nine count. You know, it's like this is a dead body. This is a corpse that comes back to a life that is obviously healed and victorious over the powers that had brought him down. He went down to the grave with death, and he came out on top, a new creation that as his disciples saw and gave their lives believing had conquered death, that death couldn't touch anymore. And so one of the the main things the early Christians were known for, one, it was their incredible compassion, like we saw already. They were known for caring for people on the outer edges of society, the sick, the dying, the poor. They were also known for their fearlessness in the face of death, being willing to die, not to kill, but to die rather than betray their savior. That was because they knew that their God had come into the world and had not just come close to his people in compassion, but he had gone down under death and risen out of it in victory. And he stands forever, eternally over it. There's a vision Uh, that the Apostle John has, uh, it's in the book of Revelation. He sees the risen Christ uh, standing in heaven, ruling, and Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This story gives us a glimpse of that power that authority that gives us hope that God will one day swallow up death forever. Let us hope in the Savior that we might have his life in his heart. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray to you because you are today, right now, the living God, our Savior. You conquer death, And you've given us that victory despite what we deserve, because we deserve it. We deserve death. So we thank you for that grace. And we pray that you would give us, fill us with your spirit, and fill us with your heart. Pray this in your name.